Welcome to another edition of Points in the Paint. I'm your host, Joseph Cacharo. Got Ryan Eli with me in the producer's chair as always, and joined over the phone by freelance extraordinaire Andrew Unterberger. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing all right, freelance extraordinaire. I like that. Yeah, I, like it's, that. It's like, I, just, I just came up with that on the fly, too. How about that? Um, speaking of on the fly, conference finals coming up. Don't, I don't know yes, how that has anything to do with being on the fly, but regardless, who gives a shit? Conference finals coming up starting uh, Sunday, I believe, with the East Finals. Uh, if anything, it kind of worked out with the way that the, the the second round wrapping up yesterday. It almost allows us to have kind of like a conference finals mm-hmm. preview show today, and we're going to touch on the coaching carousel that just keeps spinning in the NBA. But, I mean, let's get right into it with, with the conference finals matchups and maybe even looking back a little bit at the second round. Clippers Thunder ended last night. I know I had the Clippers in that series. You had the Thunder because I believe you picked OKC to win the whole thing. Uh, general thoughts on that series, maybe last night's game? Well, yeah, um, I, I, I did have the Thunder winning, although uh, uh, I've taken turns sort of rooting against the Thunder throughout these playoffs, even though I picked them to go all the way, just because I, I, I feel like uh, it's the only way that they can kind of shake up the organization and maybe get rid of Scott Brooks and maybe finally make some trades with the, the trade chips that they've had in the store for five years now or whatever. But, uh, yeah, um, the Clippers, I, I keep going back to that Eric Bledsoe trade that they made in the offseason. Eric Bledsoe is kind of their their biggest trade ship and their biggest chance to, to kind of move up in the in the world. You know, it's not rare that it's pretty rare that you get uh, a player that's not essential to your roster but has that kind of future All Star perennial potential and so obviously highly valued around the league. And then he was their one chance to kind of you know, export another difference maker to their roster. I thought, and what they got for him was JJ Redick and Jared Dudley. Uh, you know, the guys that were supposed to sit around Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, and DeAndre Jordan make their, their, their starting five and give them defense and wing shooting and, and kind of secondary playmaking and all that stuff. And by the end of the playoffs, Jared Dudley was out of the rotation altogether and J.J. Redick was shooting 7 for 17, missing a couple of the biggest shots of the night. And the fact that they they weren't able to, to kind of cash in that, that one last trade chip they have and now they're kind of tapped out for the future and all they have left to, to kind of take them to the next level from here is in the internal development of players like Griffin and Jordan. And the fact that they, that in the end, those two guys weren't able to really help them get over the hump. I, I, I think that's, that's kind of damning for the franchise. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, too, that the whole Clippers dynamic um, is interesting because, on the one hand, they're this 57-win team, legitimate contender, top 10 on both sides of the ball. They've got arguably two top five players in Paul and Griffin, definitely two top 10 players. And yet, right. I think this also speaks to the Western Conference. I know we've kind of beat this dead horse all year, mm-hmm. but just how ridiculously loaded the West is. And I don't even want to shit on the East. I'm just talking about how crazy the West is, where you have a team like the Clippers. Uh, again, 57 wins, legit superstars on their roster. DeAndre Jordan as a third wheel, great. One of the best minds in the league as the coach. And yet, you're going home in the, uh, in the sixth game of a second round. You know, Paul still hasn't played a conference finals game in his career. The Clippers as a franchise still have never made the West final. Uh, and then, you know, kind of going to the East, to contrast that, you look at what the Wizards last night, the feeling of them getting eliminated. It's like, well, you know, they had this great run, and with Wall and Beal and the crappy East, they should be good for the foreseeable future, and they won a second-round game for the first time in, you know, 30 however many years. I just found 
last night in general, this really interesting dynamic where it's like, here are the Clippers, this legitimate contender, and they're going home in the second round, and there's kind of these questions about their future because it's how do you get better and get past these great teams in the West. And then you've got the Wizards on the other end, you know, barely a winning team. They get to the second round, and it's like, well, they're in the East, so they could probably be this good for the next five years. Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking with, with our mutual friend Blake last night, and I was, uh, we were talking to him, have, have we ever seen second-round series that had this many highlight plays and this many great players and the, the, just this high level of play? And I think the answer is no. I think I was kind of comparing it to uh, in the NCAAs when, uh, when Wichita State and Kentucky played in the second round, and you know, it was just a, a bad you know, formulation of, of, the, of the bracket and stuff like that, but they, they, were, they were two of the probably the, two of the ten best teams in the, in, in the NCAAs playing just way, way before you should have seen a matchup of teams that good occurring. And that was that was the case with the Clippers. And then I think you could have made an argument, and I actually did make this argument a couple of times, that those were the two best teams in the NBA. And we saw them in the semifinals of the conference, which is pretty crazy. Uh, and uh, even if you don't think that the two best, you know, you, you know, maybe uh, you think you know San Antonio or Miami have the, the veteran edge over them, or you know they're the better coach or whatever. I think you, you have to say they're at least two of the most talented, probably the two most you know, stocked with with the weak talent in the, in the league, as you were saying. Uh, I think you can argue that you know four of the five or six best players in the league were in that series, and that's that's just crazy for for a second round series. And I, I think you're right about about the Wizards as well. I think you know if you put that team in the West, maybe they don't even make the playoffs this year. Or maybe they're you know I think Zach will compare them. They said Zach will basically said that in the West they'd be the Timberwolves, and I think that's probably true. But you know they they do get to have that kind of feeling of optimism, and where you know where, where can we go from here, just based on the fact that. There really aren't that many teams in the East that are obviously better than them, and there might not be that many teams in the East that are obviously better than them for another two or three years where you get the teams like the Celtics and the Sixers who are, are retooling and kind of taking a long view of things. Maybe then, by then, they'll be able to kind of put the clamp on the conference. But for now, it's Miami and Indiana and whoever else feels like showing up, which is which I imagine the Clippers feel pretty salty about right now considering that they went on the second round. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the one thing that doesn't worry me, the Clippers, like there there are some teams in the West, you know, where I look at it as like, how do they get better? Because they're not even in that, like even a team like the Warriors, who I love mm-hmm. watching them play, sure. and and you know they they're kind of that fringe contender. I look at them and say, well, okay, how do they get better? Because they do need to get better to legitimately contend. Even though the Clippers are going home in the second round. I think they could come back next year, pretty much be the exact same team, play the exact same way, and still have a very good chance of winning a championship. So even though the West is crazy tough, I don't necessarily look at them as like, well, they're not going to be able to get over the hump with this team. I think they can get over the hump with this team. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair. And then you can even look at the series and say if two things go differently. If, if you know a shot goes in that doesn't go in, or if a call, obviously, you know, they had so many calls that didn't go their way. If one of those calls does, could be, you know, they could have gone home three two and could have, you know, could have, could have finished off the Thunder last night, or at least be headed to Oklahoma City tomorrow to, to, to for a chance to win Game Seven, and you'd have like their chances. So I, I agree with you, and this is their kind of their first year together under Doc. You could say, you know, there's kind of an adjustment period, and you know, DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin both certainly did take a step as players this year, and now. You know, Blake is kind of on that borderline MVP level, and I would be surprised, or I wouldn't be surprised, if DeAndre Jordan made his first All Star team next year. And you know, you can look at those two guys with Chris Paul and think, yeah, that they're set for the next five or six years, uh, and and hopefully they will be. But you know, you, you never know. Uh, injuries happen. Uh, you know, this behind the shot in the scenes still with Sterling. That that's still looming over the franchise. You never know when that could come back to you know, you know, force players into kind of playing their hands and then and demanding that they, you know, they go elsewhere or the free agents won't sign them in the future. Who even knows how that plays out. But I think generally speaking, you're right that the, the Clippers 
are in a pretty good shape moving forward and that there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to contend for the next few years just you know, kind of trying that same lineup out there and hoping that they get the breaks this time. Yeah, I do I do definitely agree, though, that the Sterling situation is obviously something to monitor because while I do think that, I mean, in the end, it, by the sounds of it and everything I've been reading and watching, even though he's going to put up a fight, it does seem like the NBA will be able to have grounds to eventually force him out. The thing I'm wondering is, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see a, a boycott or like a, a strike or anything like that because I think the players realize the league is trying to get him out. But at the same time, if it does take a long time, while we might not be looking at a, a league strike or a total boycott, might we see players on the Clippers demanding a trade or trying mm-hmm. to force their way out or players not going there just until the whole thing is settled? And I guess that's one thing that can throw a wrench into the Clippers' plans. Obviously, talk about the Thunder, the team that won it. Uh, I wrote something this morning, and I was kind of saying that what this season or this playoff run has taught me so far about the Thunder, and I suppose I should have known it all along, is that, you know, despite everything, and I'm kind of with you on, I mean, it sounds horrible, but I was kind of rooting against them too because I do feel that they need a shake-up, especially with coaching, to eventually get to their optimal level. But one thing I've kind of learned with this team is that when Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook (laughs) are at their best, maybe those two are actually just so good that it doesn't matter what obstacles are. Maybe it doesn't matter that their coaching is subpar. Maybe it doesn't matter, you know, now Ibaka's hurt. Maybe it doesn't matter what team you throw in their way. Maybe they're just so good as a duo that when they're going good, no one's beating this team. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a definite possibility, and that should be pretty scary for the rest of the league. And I'm sure it's pretty scary for the San Antonio Spurs especially. But And and, you know, and speaking of, the, the Spurs kind of had firsthand experience with this. And you go back to 2012 when... You know, they had won 20 games in a row, or rather 18 before facing the Thunder, and then they won the first two games of that series. And then the Thunders kind of turned it on, and they just kind of put past them. They, they won four straight, and the Spurs' incredible season was over. And the Thunder looked unbeatable. And, and I think you're right that when Durant and Westbrook, are, especially, are playing on that level, it doesn't seem like it's possible to beat them. You know, when KG is pulling up for contested 30-footers and swishing them, there's only so much you can do. You know, I, I think... They're on that level, and the Heat are probably on that level, uh, and nobody else in the NBA really is. And all you have to do is kind of hope that they, they, they don't get to that level over the course of a seven-game series. And maybe hope you can kind of take them out of their element a little bit. But w- w- when those two guys are peaking, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of teams in the league that can hang with them, even, even at this, this high level of competition. The next team that's obviously going to attempt to hang with them, the Spurs, number one overall seed, home court advantage. Uh, just the mathematics of it re- uh, really stick out to me in that the rest of the NBA outside of Oklahoma City beat them 16 out of 78 times. Oklahoma City beat them four out of four times this season. Yeah, it's pretty it's just yeah. yeah, it's pretty crazy to think about it like that. I mean, I, I guess I'll just stick with an original prediction that the Spurs will win the West, and, and I'll be stubborn about it and say mm-hmm. Spurs find a way to win this series. But I'm guessing you're going to stick with your own original prediction, and you've got OKC in this thing. Yeah, I, I, I am going to do that, and. You know, obviously a bunch of the things that the Thunder have done this this postseason to give me pause. Some of the stuff with with Bush's rotation and the fact that you know four or five of their guys are in, the, in their ten man are kind of levitating around PRs under or at ten, which is just terrible for a ten man rotation. Uh, and that at times you basically have a three or four man team, which would just scare you going up against a team that rolls eleven deep or whatever, like the Spurs do. But uh, you know, you, you go back to that four and no regular season record. No, you know, we kind of learned from the Nets Heat that that doesn't mean everything. It doesn't mean something, especially considering that, unlike the Nets and Heat, where you know the Nets won, I think, four games by a combined like ten, thirteen points, something like that, and three of the games by one point. One of the games was in overtime. 
the Thunder won those four games pretty pretty soundly. I mean, a couple of them were close-ish, but a couple of them were by double digits. And once again, I, I, I do keep going back in my head to that 2012 series and think that you know the, the Spurs might be the better team, but when the Thunder are at their best, that's just a, a gear that the Spurs can't get to. And I, I do think that you know Westbrook and Durant are kind of finding their stride at the right time, and if, if they can kind of keep that up, then the Spurs can play a perfect game, and they probably will play a perfect game, and it might it just might not matter. And uh, you know, I, I think it'll be a close series. I think it'll be a long series. But yeah, and in the end, I think I am going to stick with the Thunder for my prediction. We were talking about you know how good that Clippers Thunder series was, and how many stars there were in it, and that you know it was almost a series worthy of a finals or of a, of a conference finals, and yet it happened in the second round. You know, I think Spurs Thunder is is, is that same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, not to discredit Miami, obviously they're the two time defending champs. Very well, could be a three. Uh, three-peat coming in a few weeks but just on its own level Spurs Thunder with those guys and, and Popovich there and the Spurs with home court and the Thunder winning the four-game series like I just feel like it's shaping up to be a classic uh, and I think the West playoffs in general have been so good this season on the flip side the East playoffs after the first round pretty disappointing well, second round yeah. you know we talk about OKC beating the Spurs four times the Nets had beat the Heat four times in a row, and I think a lot of people made too much out of it. The thing with me, too, is the, the Nets, they had beat them four times, but three of those times were by a single point, and one mm-hmm. of those four times went to overtime. So, r- essentially, the Nets had won four coin flips with the Heat, two of which didn't include Dwayne Wade. I didn't really understand people assuming the Nets could beat them, let alone you know even give them a series, and, and that's what we saw. The, Net, the Heat, despite a couple close games, kind of rolled over them. Do you give the Pacers any chance of kind of showing what the regular season showed, that they can hang with the Heat and what last season showed, or do you think the Pacers are so far down the line now that the Heat are just going to steamroll into the finals? Well, it's hard to pick against the Heat. Uh, that said, I mean, Roy Herbert, well, you just don't know with this guy. And, you know, he was kind of the key to them last year. Uh, you know, he averaged, I think, what, 20 and 12 and 56% shooting, something like that in their series last year. Those are incredible numbers, and and Objectively speaking, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do that again. I mean, if, if anything, Miami's even even thinner on the front lines than they were last year, and you know they certainly don't have anybody who, on paper, can hang with a seven-two center that can, you know, whose whose offensive game is finally kind of starting to find, uh, find a certain flow, and you know, who can just kind of outreach everybody. But you just don't know this guy. You know, he he, he should have had a decent ma- a decent at least offensive matchup against the the Hawks in the first round. There are some games in that in that Wizards series where he still no showed, and you know, the, the Pacers are going to need him to be that 2012 guy against the Heat to have a chance. And they're, they're going to need George Hill to make open shots, which he wasn't doing for most of the second round. They're going to need Paul George to to be an MVP candidate, which he was for some of the Hawks series, but not all of the Wizards series. And it, it's just hard. You know, the, the, the Pacers need to have so many things go right to have the chance to be in the Heat, and it's just hard to trust anybody on that team outside of David West, who is, who is just a the rock, and I think probably the big winner at all of this for the Pacers because he seems like the one guy that you can kind of still trust when everything else is in flux for that team. Yeah, I mean, if, if we go back to January when the, the Pacers were at their peak and, and we really were putting a lot of stock in the who gets the number one seed in home court, mm-hmm. if we go back to that time and someone tells me you get your Pacers heat East final, Pacers get home court advantage, I might pick the Pacers to win this series. I really might, but everything we've seen over the last few months, I just... I have no confidence in which yeah. Pacers team will show up game to like night to night. Uh, I could see them 
playing the Heat great in Game 1 and then getting drilled by 35 in Game 2, whereas on the flip side, I'm pretty confident in the LeBron James that's going to show up, you know, 7 out of 7 times. So I, I'm not even confident this is going to be much of a series. The other question yeah. I, I want answered as we watch this series is, is it me or is Roy Hibbert falling down a lot more like over the last few weeks and ever before, maybe I just never watched him closely enough, and maybe his balance has always been this bad. I've been tweeting about it too, and people have been tweeting back saying he's always been like this. But I feel like the guy can't leave his feet without ending up on the ground. It is interesting. The guy does seem to have kind of a, a, a no sense of equilibrium at the point. And, and I, don't, I don't know if you remember last game, uh, Mike Tirico had that great goal, great call when uh, Bradley Beal stole yes, that rebound from yes. him. He's like, "How are you seven foot two getting the ball stolen by a guard?" It reminded me and a lot of Raptors fans of watching Andrea Bargnani for a lot of years. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. And that's a sad comparison to your defensive anchor. But you know, <laughs> even as Roy's uh, scoring numbers have kind of gone up in the, in the news playoffs and he's blocking shots and playing defense and everything, he's still not rebounding that well. And, and that is kind of alarming, uh, you know, considering the, the, the advantage they have over the Heat in that respect. But uh, the, the, the really crazy thing to me is that you, know, you, you mentioned about uh, – Know, how how much the pace for stress and home court advantage on home court advantage. You know, we want we want we want the road to go in, in the East to go through us this year. And through two rounds, they're three and four at home and five and one on the road. So maybe they should have just you know kind of looked into that second or third seed after all. Maybe they would they're more of a road warrior team this season anyway. And you can take a or you know Bankers Life Fieldhouse, whatever it's called these days, is, is more bad luck and more pressure on them than anything. Yeah, I mean, although I guess on the flip side of that, if if they end up with the the two or three seed, uh, I mean, I don't even know if they beat some of these other teams in the in the first couple of rounds. Uh, true, and yeah. also, if they end up with the two seed, I mean, you mentioned them going five and one on the road. They have been extraordinary on the road in the playoffs, but I just I don't see them having that kind of success in Miami. No, certainly they haven't lost there yet, right? No. Uh, one thing before we get to the coaches, one thing I just want to quickly mention: the Spurs. Uh, there was a game. I, I I don't remember what game it was in the series against the Blazers, but you know, I don't know if you've noticed e- when the games are on ESPN once in a while, they have like Hennessy advertisements. <laughs> and there was a game. Uh, I was tweeting about that on Saturday night too. Something about I had this kind of just like out of body experience watching the Spurs that night and realizing how perfect the whole setup was. You know, watching this team that's kind of like this acquired, distinguished taste for mm-hmm. gentlemen in basketball. Taste and, of perfection. Sure, yeah, yeah, exactly. And you just see these Hennessy ads popping up. I just I thought it was really perfect. So much so that I think. Uh, I think if the Spurs beat the Thunder, or definitely if they win the finals, I'm seriously considering trying to convince a few other guys in this office to do a podcast in this very claustrophobic room while we all smoke cigars and have Hennessy. I think that would be... Hey, a- man, invite me up. I'll make the trip up. <laughs> all right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, consider it done. I think that would be a very nice tribute to the Spurs winning another one. But enough about the playoffs. Let's get to the coaching carousel. Stan Van Gundy, Steve Kerr, some firings. Uh, off the bat... Do you see the Knicks as a loser in in Steve Kerr shunning them, spurning them, or do you see it as this guy's a rookie head coach? Who cares? Well, I think it's pretty hard not to see the Knicks as a loser in the, <laughs> to, to, to some degree. I mean, well, in, in general, over the last few years, certainly, but specifically, I think, uh, uh, you know, they, they had a good article on this at Grantland. I think that the primary message here isn't that the Knicks lost Steve Kerr, it's that the Knicks lost their first choice, and in doing so, they, they lose kind of the, the mystique that Phil Jackson has. You know, because you know, Steve Kerr was supposed to be a, a Phil Jackson and Triangle acolyte, and he was supposed to be the guy who kind of implemented uh, Phil Jackson's vision uh, through this Knicks team. And 
now you look at some of the other guys being mentioned. I, I saw you laughing about it on Twitter, and so are a whole bunch of other people, and, and not not without cause that they're looking at guys like uh, Tyrone Liu and Luke Walton, and of course our, our old friend Derek Fisher, who's yeah. you know not even out of the playoffs yet. But you know, Steve Kerr don't know that he's going to be good, but he does have kind of a I don't know, an air about him, but partly due to the fact that we know him so well through the TNT broadcast, and we you know. Yeah, he actually had a pretty good tenure as a GM of the Suns. You know, some people are kind of ragging on it because they remember the Shaquille O'Neal trade, which didn't go that well. But if you remember, his last season as, as GM for that Suns team was the year that they went to the conference finals, and you know, he left voluntarily after that. Uh, but you know, that team was way outperformed expectation. You know, they were kind of an aging bunch, and it was the last year with Amar and stuff like that. And you know, they, they came you know a game or so away making the finals. And so I think he's he's seen as one of the, you know even if he's not an experienced coach he's at least a, a veteran basketball mind he has a million championship rings he has the success of the team with the Suns he has the year of all these kind of respected coaches Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich and all these guys so you know he probably he's probably a good choice for Golden State and he probably would have been an okay choice for the Knicks and and now it's just a matter of where do the Knicks go from here that he's off the market Van Gundy's off the market and now. Tyron Lue, really? Like, is, is this the best thing you're going to do? <laughs> Listen, I mean, I remember Tyron Lue having some staying power in the NBA. I'm sure he had a fine career and made a lot of money. But, yeah, I'm uh, sure he's a very smart guy, very but, nice guy. Very... At the end of the day, the, the biggest and most memorable Tyron Lue moment ever is Allen Iverson crossing him over, uh, breaking his ankles, making him fall down, and then stepping over him. Stepping over, yeah, I think it was, I've seen that clip. Many, many thousands of times. Yeah. Whenever they try to Iverson for another retirement. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you would as a Sixers fan, of course. Yeah. I think I don't know if it was Game One of that Finals or what, but yeah. I mean, game that's one, yeah. that's so the Tyron Lue moment to me, and really, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like that's the joke to me. And and don't get me wrong. I mean, maybe these guys are going to be great coaches. Being a great player does not. Being a great or not great player has nothing to do with coaching, obviously. But sure. Um, at the same time, like I just feel like. Phil Jackson literally just thought up all of the great role players he's ever had in his locker rooms and is assuming they're going to be good coaches. Like, I, I guess with Lou, he's been under Doc now for a while, so he could be good. But the thing with the Knicks is it, it's exactly what you said about it. Kerr was their first choice, and one of the only things I thought Phil could actually bring to them is that salesman mentality you know be a mm-hmm. a top recruiter and who knows maybe he will be in free agency this is just a coach not a player but his first chance to recruit happened to be a coach and it happened to be one of his former players who idolized him and it happened to be a guy where rightly or wrongly is seen as one of the hottest commodities in the coaching market right now mm-hmm. and he shunned you he spurned you he went to the warriors instead who are in a better situation but also in a tougher conference like to me this this just reeks of Nick's loserdom, you know. Where... Yeah, and, and what, what's more, is, I mean, you, I'm sure you saw those comments that uh, that Marv Albert made. No, uh, you know, to, to a CNT. Oh, yeah. So he he, uh, you know, he gave an interview. I, I can't remember to who, but he talked about the you know, Steve Kerr asked him for advice, and he basically said, "Don't go to the Knicks; they're a loser. It never ends well." Wow. And he said, and you know, talked about. Know, how it all goes back to Dolan and how you know, all these great coaches kind of washed out before Kerr and he'll, he'll kind of meet a similar fate. And you know, Marv Albert, you know, he's not you know, in a, 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 a particular, you know, he's not hired by anybody, he's not an executive, he's not hired to make these decisions. 
but he is a respected basketball mind. I'm sorry, I thought things. I thought you were going to say something about Marm Albert's moral, uh, moral. Oh, well, there, 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 there's more to be said on those grounds. You should see. Uh, I probably can't even talk about it on the air. But you should see the the uh, the post headline about Mars about Mars comments. Maybe the Daily News actually. Oh, we, well, I mean, they, we they, can they definitely. Had a great pun. We can definitely talk about it on the air. I mean, I, yeah. As soon as you brought up Marv Albert, I was thinking about the biting and the prostitution and. Well, the, 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 and the headline the, here was it was uh, Marv bites back. <laughs> Yeah, That's pretty good, right? Yeah, that is great. We've actually got a uh, shout out. We got a coworker here at the score, Kyle Smith, who does a great Marv Albert impersonation. <laughs> and I'm always I'm always teasing him about uh, you know keeping the whole biting prostitutes thing on the down low and not getting caught in women's uh, lingerie. But wow, we've really strayed <laughs> off topic with Marv Albert. Uh, right. Well, the, the point the point is in any event is that you know if, if Marv saying this about the Knicks and he certainly goes back with that franchise, you know as much as anybody. Uh, how are they ever going to kind of attract the best talent when they still have Jim Dolan making the decisions from the front office? And uh, even when Phil Jackson's there, even when it's, they sort of have this air of having turned over a new lease, it still goes back to Dolan. And as long as he's there, it's almost like Sterling in that there's always going to be a cap to, to, to how much their franchise can grow and kind of achieve that independence that they're looking for. Yeah, bingo. I mean, the, the funny thing to me is that here they were dedicating all of their attention. Like the reports were that they didn't, they hadn't even considered anyone else, hadn't talked to anyone else yet. Kerr was the guy. He was one of Phil's guys. Mm-hmm. It was going to be a done deal. They didn't even look at, for example, a Stan Van Gundy, like the actual best guy available. They just went right for Kerr. And in a chase for a guy that we're not even sure is going to be good, they got shunned anyway. To me, that is just total nicks of the two. Th- that's... Knicks under Jim Dolan right there. Uh, mentioned Van Gundy. On the flip side, the hire that I love because I, I love mm-hmm. anything Stan Van Gundy is the Pistons hiring him. I mean, I mean, I'm not sure how he'll be as a president on the executive side, but as a coach, I mean, am I right to believe here that we're all in agreement that this is a great hire? Yeah, I mean, you have to think so. Van Gundy's track record is certainly as good as anybody's out there who's available, and you know, he's done it before, and he's done it with a dominant big man. Which uh, the Pistons certainly have to like, considering that, that I think you know most of their future is wrapped up in Andre Drummond at this point. I, I think the biggest question, which is related to Van Gundy both as a coach and as a, a you know president of operations, is what they do now with Greg Monroe, who you know is a restricted free agent in the off season, uh, probably will demand a, a hefty salary. I think he's asking for the max. I don't know if he'll get that, but he'll probably get somewhere in the eight figures a year, and that's going to be a, a hell of a commitment for Detroit to match. Uh, if you know, you know, considering that they still have Drummond, they still have Josh Smith, who's making far too much money a year to, to uh, you know, essentially play the power forward position. Uh, and I think that I, I was worried on, on behalf of, of Pistons fans, at least, that they would match. You know, they, they would do the same thing that they did with Josh Smith, and they, they, they'll just match any offer for Greg Monroe, and they'll say, we'll figure it out later, even though all the evidence suggests that those three guys don't fit in the front court together. But now that they have Van Gundy, who's uh, you know most famous for, for playing this kind of four-out, four one-in style with Dwight Howard and shooters like Rashard Lewis and Hio Turkoglu on the Magic. That maybe he'll have the, the kind of the guts to say, "All right, Greg, you know, best of luck elsewhere, but you know, we're just not going to commit that kind of money to you, or work out some sort of sign and trade arrangement, or try to lowball them and you know see see if anybody else is willing to, to kind of beat them on the open market." But I, I think that you have to feel pretty good as a Pistons fan that this guy isn't going to be you know, He's not going to be beholden to Greg Monroe because he, he wasn't part of the administration that drafted him. He's not necessarily a, uh, you know Greg Monroe's not necessarily the type of player that Stanley Gundy likes. Uh, so hopefully they won't make any kind of franchise strangling decisions around Monroe just based on any kind of obligation that they have to him. Yeah, and so much of it too comes back to 
what we were talking about earlier, you know, with the Clippers being in the West and the Wizards in the East. In the East, I mean, it really isn't that hard to turn things around pretty quickly. Nope. Uh, you know, look at the Wizards and the Raptors this year as a perfect example. And, and with the Pistons, they've got a potential franchise centerpiece in Andre Drummond. Uh, Josh Smith, for as much as, you know, he really shit the bed this year and under not so good direction can be a total lost cause. Josh Smith is still a talented player, can still a, mm-hmm. be a defensive force, especially when he's at his more natural power forward position. I think a, a Smith drum in front court would be pretty fantastic if Smith can even reclaim half of his old glory. And then if you surround those guys with shooters, as Stan Van Gundy has been known to do and probably will do, and you get something for Greg Monroe, and they've still got a ton of cap flexibility going forward, and you're in this weak conference, like everything can turn around really quickly. And I, I think one hire, a really good hire, the right hire in this conference can do that for a team. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I think uh, there wouldn't be many of us who, who would be shocked next year if the Pistons made the playoffs. And, you know, they've got all those assets, as you said. And they also have a, you know, assuming they don't get leapfrogged in the lottery on Tuesday, that they're going to have a top eight pick uh, to, to add to this roster. They can get a, another shooter, like a, a Gary Harris, maybe a Doug McDermott. Uh, and then, then they have Contavious Caldwell Pope from last year. They have Brandon Jennings, who's not a not a bad shooter when when he when he takes good shots. Uh, they, they certainly have the pieces to you know to kind of rejigger things and hopefully figure out that front court rotation. And they you know, that they they could be the the Raptors the, the Raptors the Wizards next year. I don't think any of us would be that surprised. I don't think any of us would have been that surprised if they'd done this year. Yeah. So with uh, the up the upgrade from Mo Cheeks and uh, Lawyer John Lawyer yeah, to to Sam Van Gundy, I, I think. Oh my God! Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. pretty good about it. That's a drastic upgrade. <laughs> uh, last coaching hire to talk about, obviously, we mentioned Kerr spurning the Knicks, but we haven't mentioned uh, what he could bring to the right. Warriors. A lot of people are excited about the possibility of him bringing, the, obviously, some triangle principles to the Warriors' offense. How do you feel about his general, the general idea of him going there, and, and do you think he can really get this team to a level Mark Jackson couldn't? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't pretend to know what kind of style Steve Kerr is going to install with the, with the Warriors. You know, he does have the triangle background, and he also has the kind of, you know, he's had first-hand experience with the Mike D'Antoni pick-and-roll point guard-oriented offensive Phoenix, and I think you, you have to like, you know, the odds of him integrating some part of that, considering that they have Steph Curry, who's kind of, I don't know, the closest thing we have to Steve National League right now, but he's not all that far off. And so maybe it'll be some blend of that. Maybe he'll do his own thing. I, I don't pretend to know. I, I, I would tend to trust Steve Kerr figure it out. He seems like a smart guy. He seems like he has a, a good relationship with players former and, and current. So, uh, you know, he, he's got big shoes to fill in Mark Jackson because, you know, he, even as, as much of a, as much of a, of a problem as he was for the, the, the front office and the ownership towards the end of his tenure there, he was still beloved by the players. Uh, you know, and Steph Curry's gone to bat for him on any number of occasions. A couple of the other guys, you know, Jermaine O'Neal talked about how much he loved him, you know, countless times. And so he, he's going to have his work cut out kind of, Filling that, that that hole in, for, in the player coach relationship there, but he's got the acumen, he's got the uh, the connections, he's got the experience. You know, not not a head coach, but a, a, it's just a guy who's been around basketball for so many years now that you have to. I would think you have to trust them, and they're they're certainly putting their financial trust in him. So hopefully it'll pay off. Yeah, he's he's apparently got a much better relationship with uh, with ownership and, and Joe Lacob. They mm-hmm. play golf together. A lot better relationship yeah, right. than uh, than Mark Jackson had. The fact that they play golf together has been made uh, into a really big yeah, thing. Over the last... greatest bond known to man in, in yeah. the upper, upper echelons of the yeah. NBA front offices. Can't go anywhere without a good golf game. 
but yeah, no, like you mentioned, I mean, uh, obviously we have no clue what the hell his offensive playbook is going to look like, but like you, I imagine it'll incorporate some triangle principles, a lot of pick and roll, just because you have Stephen Curry, and it'd be crazy not to incorporate some pick and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, but even though I didn't necessarily think Mark Jackson was that great of a coach, I think he is one of the middle guys I talk about a lot, where I th- he's pretty much just dependent on the talent. He's not good enough to move the needle one way. He's probably not bad enough to to take wins away but he's just kind of dependent on the talent he has uh and until proven otherwise i'm going to assume steve kerr is the same way so from from an optic standpoint you know the warriors better hope steve kerr gets something out of these guys because it's just it doesn't look good when you know the franchise had finally kind of turned the corner and then you fire your first player turned analyst turned coach <laughs> for a new player turned analyst turned coach with the hopes of him turning around. So, you know, I, I'm sure he can turn it around, but he better turn it around from the Warriors' perspective. Yeah, and, and, and in a sense there, he'll have even more pressure there than he would have had in New York, where, you know, obviously the market's a lot more demanding, but the expectations uh, almost by necessity are lower at this point. And, you know, especially if, you know, God forbid, uh, Carmelo had bolted in free agency and, and Steve Kerr kind of took over this, this formless roster, you know, there, there wouldn't be expe- there certainly wouldn't be expectations for him to win a championship. There, and there might be some hope that he would at least contend for the playoffs in the East. But generally speaking, I think he would have gotten the same kind of lease that Mike Antoni did his first couple of years as a Knicks coach, where they were just rebuilding, getting rid of old, you know, bad contracts, hoping to you know, be poised to sign LeBron or Dwayne Wade or one of those other marquee free agents in 2010. And, and Steve Kerr could, could have kind of overseen that process uh, for the next few years, and then he would have been evaluated as a, on, his, on his actual merits as a head coach and with the, with, with the win-loss record and, and playoff record after that. But in Golden State, you're absolutely right. Uh, he's he's got to win, he's got to win big, and he's got to win now. Uh, and he's got, he's, he has to get them out in the first round, I think, in his first year. Otherwise, he's already going to start to feel the heat. And, uh, you know, as, as you said about Mark Jackson being the, the player analyst coach, and now, now it's Steve Kerr. Uh, I think that the precedent's been set there that, that he can have success in this, in this venue, but the, the level of success is yet to be determined. And Kerr's going to have a lot to prove. He's going to have a lot to prove to the Warriors, to the NBA, and, and to, to, to people who wonder why he turned down the New York job. So he, I think he'll, he'll, go on, he'll go into next season with as much pressure as any head coach in the league, except for maybe Scott Brooks if he's still the Thunder head coach next year. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Scott Brooks, I think Derek Fisher, instead of waiting for the Knicks job, he might just—he <laughs> should maybe hold out to coach the team he's currently on right now. But yeah, no, the, the final thought—final yeah. f- thought on Kerr with me is just—I think they can be like to me this year the Warriors were better than they were last year, even though they didn't get to the mm-hmm. second round. And I think that's the the issue with Kerr coming in and the pressure he faces is that in that loaded West, he can do a better job than Mark Jackson and not ever get them as far as Jackson got them, which was the second round. So it'll be hard to measure, but he's definitely got some pressure on him. Uh, all right, that, yeah, uh, and, and, I mean, you mentioned that they were better this year than they were last year under Mark Jackson, but a lot of that also had to do with the fact that they, you know, they traded for Andre Iguodala, and they, they got yeah. Steve Blake and Jordan Crawford in the, in, in the midseason, and those are moves that they're not going to have the room to make anymore. You know, they, they, that was kind of their last hand to be played. Now that they're they're a cap strapped team, they have no draft, they have no first round picks this year, and they have no second round picks for the next half decade. Uh, they they have limited maneuverability. They have some trade assets, but n- nothing that they can give without without sacrificing. You know, better that they can give and kind of, kind of having be no skin off their teeth. They're, they're gonna have to give something to get something, and even then, there are gonna be teams out there that have draft picks that they can include in trades and stuff. And and, and so they're they're not exactly moving from a position of strength here, no, um, not the trade at all. market or anywhere else. Not so at all. if they're gonna get better. 
going to have to be through Kerr and Kerr alone, and that's kind of a scary proposition for a first-year head coach. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you're basically asking him to be one of the what? Maybe five or six, seven at the yeah. most coaches in the NBA who can actually positively move the needle. I mean, I, I, that is asking a lot of a first-year coach. But I guess that's why they're paying him the big bucks. Yeah, <laughs> they better hope he can do it because they don't have much money to spend on anything else at this point. All right, Andrew, as always, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Are you, do you guys, you guys have a long weekend there in the States this weekend? I'm sorry? Do you have a long weekend in the States this weekend? Oh, no, that, that's uh, next weekend's Memorial Day. All right, well, we get Victoria Day in Canada, so uh, we'll be enjoying the long weekend here. But, uh, It'll be a po- pointless weekend without, uh, without playoff basketball for a couple of days. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do, man. It's kind of weird. First, first days without playoff basketball in uh, pretty much a month now. But, uh, don't don't get into trouble while you're waiting for the game. Don't 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 get into any uh, Marv Albert kind of trouble while you're. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. All right. Thanks as always to Andrew Unterberger for joining us. You can check out his stuff at thescore.com and on the Score app. Thanks as always to Ryan Eli in the producer's chair. I'm your host Joseph Casharo. Thanks for listening to Points in the Paint. Hey, if you haven't already, do the right thing. Subscribe to Points in the Paint on iTunes. And be sure to follow Joe on Twitter, at Joseph Kishara.